This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs, I'm your host Jim Minns. In this episode, The Wigs examine quite a topical legal issue. What are the laws around what can be done with documents that are produced to parties to litigation under court orders such as subpoenas? In short, the law in some places provides that such documents are confidential unless they are admitted as evidence in the case, and that parties or others who obtain the documents commit a contempt of court if they leak them with knowledge of their origins. The Wigs discuss the case of Harriet Harman, an activist lawyer in the UK and later a member of parliament who was found guilty of contempt of court for providing documents to a journalist as well as some Australian cases on point. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Means, and I'm joined by Emmanuel Kirkasherian. Jim Means. Hello. Hello. Good to have you here. Like, good to be here. That's good. That's good. Felicity Graham. What a gorgeous winter day. Yes, it is. Sun's out. Great to be here. The vibe is good. I'm feeling the vibe of today's episode. Uh, I feel like we're going <laughs> to deliver the goods. I feel like if I say that, it will become a reality. Do you agree, Mr. Stephen Lawrence, MLC? I do, Ringo. Just please wait for your title before I introduce you. Thank you. I do, Ringo. Good to be here. It's a kind of gentle I do, Ringo. Good to be here. That's good. That's good. I appreciate that. Now, we have a lot to discuss today, Wigs. I want your full attention. Uh, Do you think our listeners are aware that we call him Ringo? They are now. Yeah. Great. I'm sure. Can't wait to hear that when I'm walking down uh, Pitt Street at the top end. Uh, being yelled at as I'm trying to mind my own business. We need to get to the bottom of some serious uh, legal discussion right now. Well, you three do while I sort of duck out. Uh, who's going to um, – that's a joke. I stay for all the episodes. I just – I want the listeners to know that I uh, listen in intently. Mr. Stephen Lawrence, I believe that you are the first person to discuss something – Forgot to check the WhatsApp chat, <laughs> but the please, uh, yeah, that's what it was. Of the course, yes. <coughs> please enlighten us and the listeners. Thank you, mate. It must have been a rough night for you, <laughs> yeah. maybe no. front or something. What's I don't going know on? What, mate, I'm off my I'm off my game today, <laughs> but uh, no, no, it's going to be good. Trust me, this will okay. be one of the best. I reckon this yeah. will be podcast award worthy. Go. Okay, so I'm talking about an issue that relates to what's known in the law as the harm and undertaking. Or Which, the Hearn substantive legal obligation. Or the Hearn substantive legal oh obligation. Yes. I was just about to say that. So, look, it relates to an issue that is in a way in the news of late as a consequence of the text messages of Brittany Higgins that were subpoenaed apparently in the criminal trial that she was involved in as a complainant and then subsequently it would seem leaked to the media and which have been discussed um, and broadcast in various mediums, I think originally in the Australian newspaper. And it's been discussed as a consequence of that, that um, it's very likely the case that whoever leaked that is guilty of contempt of court. Mm. And indeed, the uh, acting uh, ACT Director of Public Prosecutions I think put out a statement saying that he didn't intend to commence contempt proceedings because he couldn't be sure who had leaked them. And I just recall reading that statement. But it raises this issue, which is what legal constraints are there on the use of documents 
obtained in a court proceeding through the use of court orders um, when the use that they are put to is not the use that they were subpoenaed or otherwise um, obtained for. Can I just ask, Stephen, you said that the messages were subpoenaed. Mm. They weren't subpoenaed from Higgins, though, were they? They were subpoenaed from the AFP or my, some other part, or were they subpoenaed from her? My understanding is they were subpoenaed from her. Right. Or, if that's wrong, which it could be, they were provided to the parties to the litigation pursuant to a court order for service of the brief. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I mean, the reason I raise that is because it's a very different scenario because in the first case, if it's come from her directly to the court, then it's only by court processes that it might have gone out, whereas if it's been given to the AFP or the DPP or whoever, then who knows who might have leaked it. Right? That's true. I mean, yeah. I think in either situation, <laughs> like either that they were subpoenaed or they were provided to the defence after brief service orders, mm. then there would be a contempt of court issue, right? I think it depends on who is responsible for the leak. And how they obtained them. So, for example, if the documents were obtained as part of the criminal investigation by police officers, AFP, ACT police officers, then there are some provisions that govern their handling of information in Section 153 of the Crimes Act and also Section 60, capital A, of the Australian Federal Police Act, which are secrecy provisions or provisions that make it a criminal offence to publish or communicate certain um, documents Mm -hmm. in certain circumstances. But I think if they obtained the documents, say, from Higgins as a witness as part of an investigation, then the contempt provisions don't strictly apply to them. If they have provided the documents to the defence under a court-ordered brief service order, then the obligation only to use them for the proceedings attaches to the defence lawyers and team and people who, Mm. their agents and so on, that obtain the documents in that way. But I don't think apply to the police yeah. on that So basis? if she's provided them for the very first time to anyone under a subpoena and has not provided them in any other way, then anyone who comes into possession of them who knows that they'll produce for legal proceedings is potentially guilty of contempt, I think, and we'll come to that. Mm. But if, for example, are you saying, if, for example, she voluntarily provided them to the police then they were subpoenaed by the defence from the police. Some other person who got them from the police might not be guilty of contempt because they haven't strictly come from the subpoena in that situation. I think that's right. I think that's probably right. We'll come to the tests and, and, and stuff. For and example, spell if that it out. were a police officer who leaked it, then they haven't they, obtained them under subpoena. They've just obtained right. them from her. And that the provisions of the Crimes Act and the AFP Act would apply to them. Would they might apply? be guilty of an offence yeah. under those provisions, but. I don't think would be caught by I the I think that's probably provisions. right. And we'll go through the tests when I sort of talk about the cases that set out the legal tests in Australia. But I think that's probably right. Um, I mean, what I understood of the coverage to do with this uh, aspect of the Higgins-Learman thing is that that she had provided them 
for the first time to anyone under a court order, was my understanding. There didn't seem to be an issue about anything other than contempt of court applying, but that's interesting. I mean, it makes sense that she might have just provided them to the police, right, as part of the investigation. Yeah. I mean, I suppose these messages... I probably should have researched this, but these messages... No. Might not <laughs> might <laughs> not have been messages that she would have provided to the police because the the ones that I've seen discussed in the Australian of late were more about her and her partner discussing the sort of dissemination of her story in the media mm. rather than messages that pertain directly to the events that were the subject of the trial. So maybe it's the case that these various text messages were subpoenaed by the defence. I thought they Whereas other messages the were provided. Yeah, uh, yeah, because wasn't there like a whole tranche of stuff? Because I've heard audio recordings and all sorts of nonsense, which yeah. obviously might be separate, but I thought they'd be recorded on a phone. Yeah. Um, I mean, anyway, look, irrespective of the detail of the Higgins matter, which is not really what I want to talk about, yeah. there's an issue in the Higgins matter which relates to has there been a contempt of court committed because some documents obtained under a court order have been used for a different purpose, i.e. for the purpose of immediate publication. So that raises the kind of general issue about what constraints are there of a legal nature on the use of documents obtained in a court proceeding through the use of court orders when one considers using them for a different purpose. So the way the law resolves this question is to say that, and there's a sort of variance on this in the sort of more recent case law, but um, it used to be the case that there uh, is taken to be an implied undertaking in such a circumstance, i.e. where you obtain a document for a certain purpose in a court proceeding under a court order. There's said to be an implied undertaking not to use the document for a different purpose. And that in more modern times and in Australian jurisprudence is now put as there being simply a substantive legal obligation not to use the document for a different purpose. Um, It's said that this is a substantive legal obligation that's owed to the court, not to the other party to the litigation. Um, And the case law generally, when it talks about why this substantive legal obligation exists, points really to two reasons. One, to protect people's privacy and confidentiality in respect of documents, to protect their right not to hand over documents that they wouldn't otherwise have to hand over. And it's obviously fairly invasive to have your documents subpoenaed or discovered. And it's also said that it should be a strict rule uh, that protects those documents to encourage compliance with court orders, encourage people to properly comply with discovery and subpoenas and so forth. Um, It's called the Harmon Obligation uh, because it was stated that is the principle in a 1981 case of the House of Lords called Harmon and Secretary of State for the Home Department. And the facts of Harmon... I think I were talking about it a bit because they're pretty pretty interesting. Uh, so Harmon was, she was a legal officer for um, a civil liberties uh, organisation and she was also a solicitor for a prisoner who was involved um, in tortious litigation in relation to the way that he'd been treated in prison, I think mm. being kept in solitary confinement mm. and so forth. 
So she sort of had two capacities. She was the plaintiff's solicitor in the proceedings, as well as working in the Civil Liberties Council. Um, as part of that litigation, a whole bunch of documents were disclosed to the plaintiff in relation to the conduct of prison administration, the way that the plaintiff had been detained and the administration of certain special conditions of confinement. She got a letter as his solicitor in the course of the litigation pointing to a potential conflict of interest between her role at Civil Liberties and her role as the plaintiff's solicitor. And she was reminded in that letter that uh, there was a potential conflict and that the reams of documents disclosed for the purpose of, of uh, the case shouldn't be generally used by the Council for Civil Liberties. She wrote back um, to the Home Department and said to them that she was well aware of her obligations and her implied undertaking um, and that she wouldn't be using them for any other purpose except as allowed by law. So then in the course um, of the litigation, uh, counsel for the plaintiff, I think she was instructing solicitor, counsel for the plaintiff gave a five-day opening address. And in the course of the opening address, he read onto the record large parts of the documents. It turned out to be the case that not all of them were admissible and not all were actually tendered or exhibited in the proceedings. But it was clear in the course of the contempt proceedings that followed that all, the, all, all of the relevant parts of the document that she was later found to have used for a different purpose were read onto the record in the proceedings. Um, yeah, so not all of those documents were tendered, uh, but they were, all were read and uh, in that sense were no longer private, uh, I suppose. Mm. Um, after the, the conclusion of the case, uh, proceedings were started against Harriet Harmon for contempt of court. Um, in the course of those proceedings, which she ultimately lost, uh, it was common ground that she had provided all of the documents that counsel had read from uh, to a journalist, uh, that the journalist was writing a story not for the purpose of just reporting on the case, uh, but rather a more investigative piece um, of journalism, looking more broadly at the practices involved and so forth. And that was later in the House of Lords to become a relevant consideration because at least one of the judges thought that if all you were doing was showing a journalist documents that had been referred to in court, that maybe you weren't outside the purpose for which the documents were provided. Uh, but he distinguished that from the case at hand where he said it was not for the purpose just of reporting. It was a different story, basically, <clears throat> a more expansive use of the documents. Um, it was also common ground um, or agreed between them that there was certainly um, – that it was certainly contempt of court or would have been contempt of court to use the documents for a different purpose up until the point where they were read from. Um, but her argument basically at first instance and um, on appeal was that at the point they were read from, she was free to provide them to journalists because they lost that quality of confidence and there was no longer an implied undertaking um, in respect to the documents. Mm. I think it's worth saying something just broadly about contempt and its different forms. <clears throat> 
So it has a number of different varieties which are generally categorised as contempt in the face of the court or hearing of the court. That's things like insulting a judge or refusing to answer a question. Then contempt by publication, that's usually things like sub judice comment where there's a question that's outstanding in a court and someone makes a comment that sort of preempts the conclusion in a way that's contemptuous or scandalising the court in some way by way of publication. And then there's this further category of disobeying court orders or undertakings. And contempt is, in addition to those sort of broad categories, also classified in this way as either either being a civil contempt or a criminal contempt. And that has then a flow-on effect for who enforces Mm. them. So civil contempts are normally left to an aggrieved party to enforce. And then criminal contempts are where the Attorney General or police and court play a role in bringing a case against a person. Uh, Yeah, I always thought contempt was such an interesting concept when I first started studying the law because I just thought, well, how can the, you know, like, why is that, why is it a matter taking place outside, but it's, there's, you know, like, I did, the inherent jurisdiction involved to just sort of lock someone up for interfering with the process. What, what is, what is the, the foundational purpose of it? Is it to maintain, is it for, ju- in, to uh, satisfy the requirements of justice? So that kind of depends on whether it's civil or criminal contempt, I think. So civil contempt is just a remedial thing. It's just designed to um, ensure that it doesn't happen again, for example, whereas criminal contempt has that broader criminal purpose, so deter others, impose criminal punishment. But uh, maintain the sort of just outcome of whatever decision needs to... Yeah, I think the capacity of the court to function. So, like, if everyone's standing up and, you know, committing contempts in the face of the court then the court will no longer be able to function properly. Yeah. If everyone's out there in the media scandalising the court and bringing the court into disrepute, then the theory goes the court will not be able to continue to operate because public confidence will be undermined. And if court orders aren't enforced, then you know further people will cease to obey court orders. I think it's, it's a, all a about fast... integrity and administration yeah. of justice. And, and also embroiling the court in injustice. So particularly this type of consent, contempt rather, concerned with use of documents, the authorities say that because obtaining documents in this way through compulsion, that's an invasion of a private right to otherwise keep your documents to yourself, then that is reflected in a public interest in privacy and confidence, which demands that the compulsion shouldn't go further than the course of justice requires. So courts should, in accordance with that, not allow a party or anyone else, their agents and so on, people with knowledge of the documents being obtained by compulsion to use the documents for something else, an ulterior or alien purpose. Because but for the proceeding, you wouldn't have exposure to the document. Right. And so the courts say, well, otherwise we... we ourselves would be doing an injustice. And they also talk about what might be a sort of downstream consequence of a free-for-all on documents used in court proceedings as well. Mm. Things like, you know, if you've got an inter- interdepartmental memoranda that contains 
criticisms of people, negligence or misconduct, if these were permitted to then be used more broadly, then you might find that suddenly the documents don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm. As in people will stop complying. Because they'll know what's ahead of them. They'll right, be right. destroyed yeah. or they'll be said to have never existed mm-hmm. or, um, you know, there'll be these other flow-on consequences. And so in order to also encourage openness and fairness and the proper operation of courts based on available evidence, there needs to be this constraint around how they can be used to a point. Mm-hmm. So with Harmon, it was not a criminal contempt. It was said to be a civil contempt. Um, anyway, so she was found guilty. Um, she appealed to the House of Lords and the House of Lords ruled against her, so rejected her appeal three to two. Um, so she was guilty of contempt even though... All the documents that she provided to the journalist had all been read onto the record in a public place, et cetera, et cetera. And there's some discussions in there about how um, it's no, it was no answer that they had been read in public because it opened the documents up for exposure in a completely different way. A person who wanted to, for example expose the contents of the court transcript or the proceedings in court would have would have to have applied for a transcript. They would have had to have uh, been granted permission for it, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they could have sat in the back of court and just written about it. Yeah, they could have, but I suppose the point is they didn't and the journalist wasn't just reporting in any event what had happened in sure. the court. They were doing this whole different story. Sure. Um, I mean, it's interesting because some of the Australian court rules now – uh, that govern this in some jurisdictions where the common law doesn't apply, they actually disapply the the obligation or the implied undertaking where documents have been tendered or read out. Uh, and in fact, after she lost, this is interesting, she appealed to the European Court of Human Rights and she argued in the European Court of Human Rights that various of her rights uh, had been breached and the UK provided an undertaking to the European Court uh, to resolve the complaint whereby they agreed to seek to change the law so that it will no longer be a contempt of court to make public material contained in documents compulsorily disclosed in civil proceedings once those documents have been read out in open court. Wasn't she a member of parliament? She became a member of parliament. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm like, yeah. dude. Go to work and do this. Yeah, yeah. She became a member of parliament afterwards and had quite a quite an interesting I, well, I career. I can see why, why she was influenced to do that. Um, and so their concession went on to read, the substance of the change would be that where a document or part of a document so disclosed to a party in civil proceedings has been read out in open court, the implied undertaking given by the person to whom such disclosure has been made not to use the document for any purpose other than the proper conduct of his own case should not prevent his using that document for the purpose of his making the contents of the document or that part of it, as the case may be, known to any person. So she lost. She was guilty of civil contempt. She appealed to the European Court. The UK agreed to change the law. Um, So it's a bit of a cautionary tale, I suppose, for activist lawyers in the sense that if you're going to be helping journalists to write stories about systemic issues, you need to be careful that you're not providing them with documents that you don't have a right to. Uh, but it didn't stymie her career. 
uh, because... I think I just ruined that footnote, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She got elected as an MP at the 1982 uh, election or at a by-election. It was made a shadow social service minister in 1984. And then she went on to be a minister under Tony Blair. She's still in parliament and she's apparently indicated that she's going to retire... Um, at the next general election. Uh, but interestingly of note, lately, she was the chair of the committee that looked into Boris Johnson breaching uh, the COVID rules yeah. uh, and so forth. Yeah, she was the chair of that committee. And she's a silk. She's a silk. Uh, she was a solicitor general during her time in parliament, which mm. I think in the UK must be a parliamentary position, mm. sort of under the attorney general or something. It used to be here as well. Yeah, it did. I didn't know that. Yeah, interesting. So that's Harmon, which is pretty interesting. And the other case that, uh, that I wanted to talk about was Hearn. That's Hearn with an E. Hearn v. Street, which... So not Hearn with an H. Not, not Hearn with no E, like Christian Hearn. Uh-huh. Hearn with an E. So Hearn v. Street is the leading case in Australia on this issue. And it's also pretty interesting. So Hearn v. Street was a case where uh, some local residents who lived in the vicinity of Luna Park were suing two companies who run Luna Park or ran Luna Park then. Because of the noise? Because of the noise. It was a noise nuisance case. Oh, yeah, it was a nuisance case. And they were concerned about, among other things, uh, people on rides shrieking and howling and all sorts of other noises coming out of Luna Park. And (laughs) as part of that case, a whole lot of documents were disclosed by people, uh, by local residents and so forth. And there were two, it would seem, instances of contempt. The first didn't seem to lead to action, and that occurred when the companies or representatives of the companies leaked various subpoena documents to the Daily Telegraph um, or some newspaper at that time in Sydney. I think it was the Telegraph. Yeah, it was the Tele, yeah. Yeah. Um, And there was an exchange of letters between the lawyers where it was agreed that that shouldn't have occurred and so forth. Then further... The the Tele published then disparaging no. reports about the residents' claims. Yeah, that's not the telly I know. As they were. Okay. Not the telly I know. All right. <laughs> if you say so. But then there was an apology. Then there was an apology. Thank agree not to do yeah, it. Uh, that's about right. And then things got more sort of interesting where the companies then decided to lobby the state government for a law change to basically defeat the case. And they provided they provided material that I think was affidavit material that had been provided under court orders to the relevant minister. Then, when there was an argument later about who was going to pay the costs of the matter, um, the residents were saying, "Well, you didn't tell anyone that you were going to get this law change. We incurred all these additional costs when you, in a more timely way, could have dealt with this." Then the documents were disclosed that showed that the companies had provided that material to the minister and there was not such a conciliatory uh, approach taken on that occasion in relation to the contempt issue and contempt proceedings were instituted. And the issue basically that found its way to the High Court related more to the question of whether agents of the company who hadn't personally given the implied undertaking or weren't arguably bound by the substantive legal obligation were guilty of contempt or could it be the case that only the company itself could be? And that issue was resolved against two individuals who were directors, I think, of the relevant companies. Managing director and development manager. Yeah, and the High Court found that, no, the 
the implied obligation or the substantive legal obligation applies to anyone who comes into possession of the documents as long as they know that they were, broadly speaking, obtained in legal proceedings. Yeah, this was one of the points that I thought was kind of really worth digging into because they discussed this issue on Insiders recently and it was said on that program that journalists or suggested on that program that the undertaking didn't apply to journalists and so they couldn't be liable for contempt for using documents that have been obtained in this way. And depending on the factual circumstances, I think that's quite wrong um, because I think this case of Hearn and Street makes it clear that depending on the state of knowledge of a third p- person, uh, they can be considered to be bound by the implied undertaking and therefore that can give rise to consequences for them for contempt. Mm. Um, so they say in that case, it said in that case, the primary person bound by the relevant obligation is the litigant who receives documents or information from the other side pursuant to litigious processes. The implied undertaking also binds others to whom documents and information are given and then there are some examples provided, expert witnesses who are not parties commonly receive such documents and information and are bound by the obligation. It's likely that in the future documents and information will be provided to persons funding litigation who will likewise be bound by the obligation. If this principle did not exist, that is, that third parties are also caught by the obligation, the implied undertaking or obligation on the litigant would be of little value because it could be evaded easily. There's no support in the authorities for the idea that knowledge of anything more than the origins of the material... Uh, in legal proceedings needs to be established. Mm. In particular, there's no support for the idea that knowledge of the implied undertaking and its consequences should be proved, for that would require proof of knowledge of the law and generally ignorance of the law does not prevent liability arising. So journalists publishing, say, these Higgins text messages, if they knew that they had come um, into their possession or into the the leak at their source's possession because of being obtained under if compulsion. If. Yeah, if. Mm. Well, mm. if they knew if, in fact, they did. So there's two ifs, right? We don't know that they did come into their source's possession mm. sure. in that way. And sure, it, So, yeah. Sure, sure. Knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Um, then potentially there could be a contempt. Mm. That's so... So... You, ha- you still have to know, you still have to prove that the journalist knew that they were acquired in that, that they have some connection to the court proceedings. Correct. Right? That seems to be basically like the only requirement. Well, that's going to be They impossible. don't have to know that they were obtained under compulsory process. No, they, they do have re- to know the origin of the document. In the sense of knowing that they were obtained under a compulsory court yes. order. I didn't read Hernby Street that way, I must say. I mean, but short of short of somebody actually giving that evidence or the document saying on its face this was acquired pursuant to a compulsory whatever, you're never going to be able to prove that either. Let me just read you what I thought. Right. Um, Knowledge of anything more than the origins in of the legal proceedings. In legal yeah. Proceedings. So at one oh at one twelve of Hearn, it says there is. I think it says my. Copy slightly obscure, but there is no support in the authorities for the idea that knowledge of anything more than the origins of the material in legal proceedings needs to be established. 
So I would read that as this is a document that came into existence or was provided in the context of legal proceedings, not mm. necessarily some knowledge of compulsory process or anything of that nature, which I think is pretty material, pretty material, I think, in terms of a kind of guilty mens rea. I mean... Mm. What do you guys think of this as a matter of policy? Like, should this should this be the case? So I think that... Yes, I don't think it should be carte blanche in relation to documents that you get in court proceedings if they're not used in court proceedings. Yeah. Because, and, you know, as we know as criminal lawyers, that there's no such thing as privacy in a criminal trial. I mean, the documents Mm. that are subpoenaed, and there's variable practices, right, in respect of this, because sometimes you'll subpoena a hospital or sometimes you'll subpoena the cops and a lawyer will turn up and start talking about privacy and trying to apply strict standards. But often documents are are just returned to the court with no sort of concern for that. So highly sensitive stuff is disclosed. There has to be limits on that. Mm, I agree. But this idea that journalists, for example, are going to be guilty of contempt if they publish something in the public interest just because it's got an origin in legal proceedings, I don't think that's a proportionate burden on the implied freedom. Mm. Like a journalist who gets, for example, material that seems to be quite relevant to the origins of the whole Higgins sort of expose of the allegation, maybe that could be relevant in turn to the payment to her from the Commonwealth. The idea that those journalists are guilty of some form of civil or criminal contempt always necessarily just by publishing, I think that's quite a burden when you think about it. And this idea that that virtually no mens rea would be required apart from knowledge that they somehow emanate in legal proceedings, I'm not sure the High Court if that question was posed in a focused way, would say that that's a satisfactory state of affairs. Mm. It's got to be limits, I think, on this. Mm. So I first came up against this in a practical sense in a case in Wilcannia, local court of Philip Bugmy, <clears throat> client of mine who was tasered by the police in Wilcannia um, in circumstances that were ultimately um, ruled to be uh, unlawful. Um, and we subpoenaed in that case the police standard operating procedures in relation to use of tasers to show that there have been a number of breaches of the standard operating procedures in terms of how the taser was used um, and the failure by police to do other things like de-escalate the situation. And at the end of the case... um, I wanted to present a paper about use of tasers and use of cases, a case study at legal conferences. And so I applied to the magistrate to be released from the undertaking in relation to the standard operating procedures. And I did it because even though the document had been tendered in the proceedings, which would, under New South Wales authority, suggest that the obligation had lapsed, I just wanted to make sure that I was on solid ground about that and mm. to made a formal application because it's... It's a, a I think big the, document, that one too. Yeah, well, it's mm. since been made or a version of it has since been made public by the police on their website. Um, but we had the version, um, at least as at that time, that was the one that was the internal um, police version. Yeah, but there's... I think it is something, especially in different jurisdictions, that people need to pay careful attention to because there's some authority in Victoria that, um, from the Court of Appeal that says that 
if a party wants to use a document to which the obligation applies for some other purpose, even after it has been tendered in open court and obtained that sort of public document status, the party should still make an application to the court to be released from the obligation. That's this case of British American Tobacco Australia Services and Cowell. 2003 decision. Which has not been followed in New South Wales, right? Yeah, as far as... As inconsistent with Hernan Street, I think. Yeah, so I think um, in New South Wales, although many of the comments are in Obertar, so there's a case, just for example, Moage Limited and Jay Gorman and others, a 2002 Supreme Court, New South Wales Supreme Court case, Justice... Giselle said once a document has been read in open court, however, it loses its confidentiality and loses the protection of the undertaking. But and, and there Street are many other cases. Because there seems to be a distinction here between read out and tendered, right? Yeah, and Hernan Street talks about evidence. tendered, received into evidence. Yeah. Yeah. So read out, I don't think would necessarily cut it under Hearn B Street. And that was obviously the issue in Harmon as well. Well, I think it also probably slightly depends on what you mean by read because if mm. an affidavit is read true that usually means mm. that it's received into evidence true. yeah yeah it's weird you, you have concerns about it manny no i just i mean so in the first instance i don't like the idea of people who are non-parties to court proceedings being described as having an implied undertaking to anything because that is just too fictional to yeah, be true totally um but except what about freezing orders what about freezing orders? Well, wouldn't they have an, uh, an implied undertaking to maintain that they've got, I don't know, security for costs, for example? No, those things are served on you and you're bound by them, right? right. You, you know that those You've got orders, notice you, of you them. You've got notice of them. This is just, you know, you are potentially, I mean, not criminally liable, but you're potentially liable for contempt. Without your knowledge. Without your knowledge, Right. And sure, that you know they have to prove, but you know the, the point is that you might have to find yourself defending against the contempt allegation. I also there's certainly, particularly for commercial and confidence matters, there's certainly a need to protect information, particularly in sort of bid litigation where this inbox of the CEO is being analysed and given to the other side. Sure, you've got to protect all of that. You've got to protect all the analysis of the money and all that, you know, all the economic analyses and so on. But you're already under an obligation is what you're saying in that regard. Well, I mean, that is in effect covered by – usually those things are done into parties by agreement. The confidentiality regime is put into place by the solicitors during discovery. But – and if not, it would be covered by these undertakings. But I just wonder whether – the solution is not so much at being a contempt, but rather it's sounding in damages. Like, if if you have published this thing and it is the subject of a court order and it causes somebody financial harm then or some sort of damage, then let's have a tortious liability for it. Mm. But otherwise, why impinge on free speech when you're getting in the place where journalists who yet leaks all the time from members mm. of parliament and members of the gov- of governments and so on, some of which are criminal leaks, that is, they're in breach of some act here or there. We don't call for an investigation of that. And when we do, it's the standard, yes, minister invest- we have the investigation that never reports, you know. So really, I think journos are pretty good at deciding when things should come out and not. They get it wrong sometimes, like everybody does, but whether or not that should result in an investigation and so on seems to me too far. So in Hearn Hearn and Street, they kind of talk about this. So at 111, they say, if this principle did not exist, 
the implied undertaking or obligation on the litigant, uh, sorry, that is uh, the principal to expand it to anyone who comes into possession of the documents. The, uh, the implied undertaking or obligations would be of little value because it could be evaded easily. And then they talk about Lord Denning, in some case of Riddick, saying the court should not allow the other party or anyone else to use the documents for an ulterior or alien purpose. Otherwise, the courts themselves would be doing injustice. Um, then they quote Stevenson, Lord Justice, it is important to the public and in the public interest that the protection should be enforced against anybody who makes improper use of it. Use with knowledge of the circumstances would be improper use. I mean, I suppose one way of looking at that is to say, well, in the case of a third party using the document, so for example, a journalist or someone, you punish the act which is giving the document to them. So you track down who's the party who came into possession of it, who handed it on to them. But I suppose a response to that coming out of that is, well, that's just going to be impossible to enforce. Like once you let anyone use it who's not bound by the obligation, you'll effectively just have documents willy-nilly. And also journalists won't reveal their sources. So then you'll never work out. You'll never know. You'll often not be able to work out. You're just ticking it down a step, right? Like... If, you, if the journos aren't going to reveal their sources and if we say as a society that's a good thing, which I think we do, then the impossibility of enforcement s- continues to, to be there, right? Except you prosecute the journalist on this reasoning, I suppose. Well, uh, yeah, but, but, you're mm. not gonna, but how can you prosecute the journalist? You can only prosecute because they've published it. Well, you can prove their state of knowledge. If you, the only way you can prove their state of knowledge is by attributing back to the person who gave it to them. I think sometimes so, you'll be able to prove their knowledge. It'll depend, I think. Without attributing back to the source? For example, it might be that the document self-evidently has come out of legal proceedings, like a witness affidavit or something like that. That's So true. that situation they would know. Or it could be a bit like Higgins where you just might be able to prove from public circumstances that it's come out of subpoenaed material. Good luck. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it would depend on the document. I think that's right. Like, there might be cases where you can't. And then, we're, and what we're talking about is investigating how journalists came into possession of documents. Um, I mean, I'm not down with that, mm. right? That's mm. totalitarian stuff. Well, that's why in America, and this sort of raises Assange, right? I mean, this is the New York Times defence, yeah. where we won't prosecute journalists previously for espionage-related offences, even though they've committed the elements of it by publication mm. because of the First Amendment. Mm. Yeah. And that's why I think this implied freedom has work to do here. Mm. You know, is this whole notion in its kind of minutiae consistent or, to put it in the language of the implied freedom, is it a proportionate blah, blah, blah burden on the implied freedom? I mean, that, yes. That, that's the answer what is yes, it is because it blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about this scenario? Because this is another scenario where I've applied to have to, to be released from the obligation or undertaking where documents are obtained, for example, in family court proceedings relevant to the credibility of a witness I'm about to cross-examine in criminal proceedings, often where there's where my client has a familial relationship with the other party in family proceedings and so mm-hmm. they're a party to the family court proceedings and they're a party to the criminal proceedings as the accused... Do you think that there, sh- there should be, Manny, a, any process by which those documents can
can be used or should there be any constraints on them? They've been obtained? <clears throat> I think there should be a law that says that these undertakings don't apply to criminal accused insofar as they want to use documents for their defence, full stop. Just on that, by the way, right. just on family court, it's broader in the family court, right? Because yeah. in the family court, even if they're tendered or read, you still can't you use still them. Can't. Yeah, There's a statutory bar. Yeah, there are some... Unless you apply to the family court. Yeah. yeah. It's a nightmare. Mm. Um, but I, I think an accused in a criminal trial should be able to use whatever documents he or she can get her hands on. Yeah. As a matter of policy, you know. Mm. what? Why would you prevent them from doing that? Uh. You know, the relative harm is such that their rights should triumph. Mm. And, you know, you would think that in circumstances where a criminal court lets you use that document that the original court that it's come from would in any event grant access. That's right. So on a policy level... Why should you have to go through the... Why route? should you have to go to the other court, right? Because And there's actually a case talked about in, in a paper that I read that there's some authority for the proposition that another court can relieve you. Mm. So, for example, the family court has held that it can relieve people of the implied undertaking to the federal court, which maybe that's kind of getting at this idea that substantively it's perhaps not that material as a requirement because if one court superior court or court of equal jurisdiction is going to let you use it presumably the other one is Mm. and i would have thought use for credibility in a criminal proceeding would be a prime circumstance in which you would almost always get leave Mm. Mm. yeah i mean i have so there's a couple of other things i just wanted to talk about just before we finish up on this um in terms of what is this Jim's sort of cracking the whip. ulterior the purpose, is. it's obviously going to be enlivened when you tender a document in a different proceeding, etc. But it's maybe worth thinking about the fact that it might apply, for example, when you use it in a background sense. So you use a document that your client gives you to formulate a line of questioning. You're probably using it then for a different purpose, right? Um, Sorry, what was that example? So using a, you use a document that your client gives you that's come under compulsory process in a different court to formulate cross-examination, use it to cross-examine a witness. Yeah, you can't do that. Use it as background to formulate your questions. Mm-hmm. Even though maybe no one's ever going to know, you're probably breaching the undertaking, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think you For are. For sure. I mean, I don't look at those, you know, you get sometimes you get them on a brief and the first document is like... And I ring the solicitor. I'm like, is this from another proceeding? And they're like, yep. Like, oh, I'm not reading it. Yeah. You have to. You probably shouldn't, right? Well, it's, you've just got to, be, you've got to be careful because mm. you find yourself putting some proposition that's in the back of your mind mm. that's come from this document. I thought you were going to say that. And then things unravel. Like, yeah. I, I knew, I read somewhere where you, where this had, and yeah. Yeah. yeah it's quite a trap for young players, this, I think. Yeah. Quite a trap for young players. Because unlike maybe a lot of rules, I don't think it's necessarily intuitive, right? I think as a young solicitor, for example, you might get given documents from a client that come from the family court or come yep. from wherever. You might think, of course, I'll use that. But mm-hmm. there's actually this kind of whole body of law around that that's not necessarily consistent with some ethical framework you might have in your head. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at 
The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz. <laughs>